0: Well, hello and welcome to episode number 20 of Behind the Mic Conversations of Hope. Hey, listen, I want to thank you so much for just following and uh, those of you who are subscribed and listening each week, I really want to thank you. I had no idea what this podcast was going to do, I just felt called to do it. Well, one thing I've learned in doing all of these podcasts, it has been that we are really Spirit and physical body and emotion and mental and all of those things fit together make us who we are. I'm really excited about today's episode because it really all comes together in that mindset. We look to Mark chapter 6, verse 34. We're talking about the feeding of the 5,000. It says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he began teaching them many things. Now, Jesus was concerned about the spiritual health and well-being of those around him in the day that he walked on the face of the earth. He came to reconcile us back to God in that spiritual sense because we were lost and broken and sinful. The really great thing in this passage here is he also was concerned that day not just about their knowledge and their spirituality, He was concerned about their physical well-being. It goes on to say that, you know, the people were hungry. And God, the Creator, who was in flesh, Jesus Christ that day, fed over 5,000 men along with women and children. Uh, He was concerned about their physical needs because Jesus cared for the whole person, not just the soul. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today. Our guest is Lori Prusnick. Lori and her family, uh, we met through basketball uh, with our daughters playing high school basketball together and found out that Lori was a professor of occupational therapy. She brought a lot of insight uh, into my life with uh, my podcast and just how I see people and helping me to see people more as a whole rather than looking at people based on how they act in public. During the podcast, I mention that to Lori and tell her that, you know, even as uh, someone with a pastoral ministry degree, I still see things a little bit more clearly based on her input as an occupational therapist. Most of us probably don't know that occupational therapy really started to focus on the mental part of the person, dealing with emotional needs as well. Today, when we think of occupational therapy, typically we think of broken bones and injuries that that need physical intervention or medical intervention uh, to heal, but uh, occupational therapy really is about healing the whole person. And so we're going to talk to Lori today, and Lori also has uh, an important life story that she's going to share with us too about loss and dealing with not only the physical pain and suffering, but also the emotional the spiritual pain and suffering as well, as Lori and her husband lost a child. So we want to talk to Lori about her knowledge and how she used that knowledge in occupational therapy to get through a really difficult time in her life. So I hope you will learn from Lori Presnick as she shares her story. Lori, how you doing?
1: I'm doing all right. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. So we'll, we'll share a little bit about who you are and what you do. And um, so I, I know that you are a professor in occupational therapy, and you also have your doctorate in occupational therapy as well. And that's kind of what we how we connected was, was through the podcast and also through your profession. We started talking a little bit, and you shared your story with me, and that's why I'm so glad to have you here today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your family?
1: Okay. Um, I'm Lori Presnick. I'm from Finley, Ohio. Um, I have been an occupational therapist for almost 20 years. I graduated from Eastern Michigan University in 2001 and then was a practicing OT in across the, the lifespan, really, in lots of different practice areas. So I helped people from little babies all the way to older adults. Uh, I worked in their home. I worked in schools, um, hospitals, uh, psychiatric units, and outpatient clinics just to really help people become who they, who they want to be, um, whether it's from a physical injury, if they've broken their arm, getting back to doing the things that are meaningful to them, um, we in occupational therapy call that they're meaningful occupations. So occupations in that sense are anything that you like doing. So like you, you like to do your podcast. I like to run, um, Katie likes to play basketball. All of Mm -hmm. those are things that are meaningful occupations to us that bring balance to our lives. It brings joy to our life and gives us a sense of purpose, which helps not only our physical health, but our mental health. And mental health is a piece when you're talking about occupational therapy that is often forgotten about or not known. So... Occupational therapy treats not only the person's physical health but their mental health. We look at the person as a whole being and not just a injury or a um, disorder or something like that.
0: When you started sharing kind of what you did and and you had listened to a couple podcasts and and I I reached out to you about something we I don't know through basketball games or something we we started talking and you said that really the mental health part of occupational therapy was like. The, the centerpiece of it. And right. you kind of you kind of or not you, but uh, occupational therapy has kind of went a little bit by the wayside from that. Um, I had no idea that that mental health was such an, a central part of occupational therapy.
1: Right. So back in the early 1900s, The early occupational therapist helped soldiers um, that were coming, that were injured in war that kind of felt like they had lost their purpose because they had either been physically injured or they suffered from shell shock Mm -hmm. um, and they couldn't get back into their life. Um, So they gave them things to do that they found meaningful, whether it was leather lacing or doing a woodworking project or helping them to garden, giving them some purpose to get better and kind of get back into life. And then as the, so we, that's kind of our roots. And then as we evolved, we became more part of the medical model, which is that focus of, um, you know, we want to fix the broken part. And we kind of lost our way here recently, probably within the last 10 to 15 years, we're we're seeing that whole mental health piece really become an issue. Not again, but that we've kind of lost our place in that mental health world. And we need to find our our way back because that's really um, we can really make an impact there. And while we're only three percent of the population of OTs work in the mental health setting, technically, um, there's always a mental health aspect of everything that we do, whether you're helping a little kid in the school
0: um, Mm, learn
1: to write their letters and that helps their self-esteem. Or you help that person that has broken their arm learn to fish again. That brings more positive um, feelings, which helps their mood, decreases anxiety and depression. So while you're fixing the physical piece, you can also fix the mental piece too. And so that's kind of where we're finding ourselves moving back to.
0: That's really great, and I, I think that just in the the podcast that we've done and the topics that we've talked about, we're starting to see that you know you really. It's hard to separate the mental from the physical and even the spiritual. And and so um I think it's great to hear that. Yeah, I had a, I had a totally different view of what occupational therapy was. And so you actually asked me uh, if I wanted to sit in on a class, uh, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But I went and sent in on a class, and one of the quotes I heard you say, which I loved because it falls right in line with what part of the purpose of my podcast is, you said... That you see people as a puzzle with missing pieces that clue us in as to who they are and why they have made the choices that they have made. I really like that because yeah. we, we we look at things from our perspective. I mean, that's just we, we have one perspective. and If we're not aware of that statement and seeing people with missing pieces, then we don't we just look at people from that one dimensional view and we don't see the whole person. Uh, we don't see that maybe there are reasons why they do the things they do or why they've made choices that they've made. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I think you did with your class at that on that day.
1: Um, so I find so as an occupational therapist and as a person, I I really love to watch people, and because we're all very fascinating creatures. Um, mm-hmm we can portray ourselves in lots of different ways but the way that you act always kind of comes back to a reason you know if you 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 can present that picture but nobody is perfect to make sure that that picture is always perfect you will always show something And that's, that's one of the things that I love about my profession is I can watch people and figure out, you know, why, why do they want to do something so badly? Why is a specific piece so important to them? And sometimes they'll tell you, um, right up front that I want to do this because, Mm -hmm. and you can see the passion of that. But then as you watch them, um, in different environments and doing different things, you you see different sides of them and i see it a lot with my students you know they'll be super passionate about something but they'll get tripped up on something and they just can't kind of seem to get over it and you'll watch and you'll ask questions and you'll you'll give them challenges and things to see kind of how they react Mm -hmm. and sometimes they'll show you that piece and then when they show you that piece of the puzzle it all kind of fits in and makes sense as to, you know, why are they so anxious about speaking in front of people? Why do they have such a hard time um, talking about this topic in class? Why, why are they so set on getting that A? You know, so what is that piece that drives them? And some people are more forthcoming with that information. Sometimes it's easier to show that information. And then sometimes people really hold it close and guard it. And it's just all about, you know, building that relationship, gaining their trust um, so that you can figure out that that where that piece goes so that you can see a greater picture of that person and who they are so that you can help them better.
0: It's really helped me. I I think having gone through a pastoral ministry background, I've had some counseling and I've, I've been able to see that. But the way that you described that in class that day really helped me no matter where I'm at or what's going on, especially if there's something out of the ordinary. You know, I think sometimes we just tend to go, oh, you know, crazy parent or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm
0: now looking at them with a, a different perspective. So. I want to thank you for that. But I also want to say, too, that people share. They choose to share the puzzle pieces that we see. Sometimes we talk about how we put on a facade. You know, we try to be somebody who we're not. But through talking to you, you started to share some missing pieces of puzzle with me. And I would have never known. I guess that's why I'm really grateful that you're sharing because you went through some really tough stuff you and your family Mm -hmm. and um and you started to share some of those missing pieces with me as as we talked about stories that was i think a connecting thing as we started talking about stories and and how important it is to see those different perspectives or those different dimensions of people would you want to share uh, some of those things that you those missing pieces of, of the puzzle um, that just kind of helped me really to see more than what I saw at basketball games and, and things like that.
1: Yeah, I, I can do that. Um, I I kind of wanted to start out is, you know, that you get this perception of people, and I think a lot with social media, also that you, know, mm, yeah. you look at someone and you say, wow, um, they seem to really have it all together. They appear very confident. They, they kind of have it all. And I'm not saying that That's how I think other people view me or anything, but I know that I have had students that say, you know, I didn't understand that you knew as much about me as I thought because you appear so confident. Mm -hmm. So our story started, I guess, quite a while ago. Tom and I got married in 1999. We met in college and dated for a few years and then got married. About five years after we got married, um, we got pregnant, and we had Katie. She's now 16 years old. Uh, Kate was born with bilateral hearing impairment, and so life was a little bit challenging um, there for a while. We are very fortunate that that's the only um, challenge that she has. Otherwise, um, she can kind of function as the quote-unquote normal kid.
0: And she's great. (laughs) <laughs> At basketball, by the way, It's for thank those who you. don't know her,
1: <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. But with that came some challenges. We we didn't know for a while whether her hearing impairment was genetic, or um, whether it was a complication of my um, pregnancy. We had um, kind of a rough pregnancy. She was born early. So having a second child was something that we we really discussed a long time before deciding whether that was the, the right step to go into. So after some contemplation, we decided to go ahead and try again. And on May 8th of 2008, we were blessed with Tyler. He was born four weeks early at six pounds, six ounces uh, was very very healthy. He did have some complications that we had to have surgically taken care of about a week after he was born, um, which gave us some some anxiety. You know that anxiety of having another baby and hoping that everything would go okay, mm-hmm. and then having him born four weeks early was a little more anxiety provoking. And then um, he had his surgery at uh, Cleveland Clinic a week after he was born to fix a testicular issue that he had. And when we got through that, we had finally thought that we had kind of, you know, bypassed everything yeah. because we, we had kind of lucked out, I guess, if you want to call it that, that um, we had avoided a lot of things that could have been pretty serious. So life kind of went back to the, the new normal. We had two kids, uh, Kate was four and Ty, and we were settling into a, a new life of a family of four. I had just gone back to work when on, on it was a Sunday in August um, that he started to run a fever, um, which, you know, I had kind of checked WebMD and all of those kinds of things and knew that it was kind of un, not normal to have a fever at that, that little. And it also, um, you're not supposed to give them Tylenol and Motrin. Uh, so sure. I called the doctor and, um, asked them, you know, Hey, this is what's going on. He's a little sleepier than normal, but he's eating well. He's got wet diapers, you know, all of those things that moms look at, Mm-hmm so they told me to give him some, some Tylenol and Motrin and just kind of keep in touch with them and then let them know how that went. And I called my mom, who was a former nurse, and she said, you know, I, I really think that you ought to take him in. And that was kind of the, the one of the first taps on the shoulder that I feel like I, I got from God in this situation, that... She told me to take him in and I kind of assessed the situation and I said, you know, I, I think that we're going to be okay. Um, we're going to, we're just going to kind of go with this. I, I trust the doctor and we'll kind of see where it goes. Sure. Then we, we kind of went throughout the day. I watched him. I slept on the couch with him that night, reclined with him on my chest, and um, his fever broke about 4 o'clock that morning. So I um, gave him a bath, changed his clothes, and I had decided at that point in time I was going to just kind of get myself around and have him at the doctor at 8 o'clock in the morning just to check and make sure that everything was okay. And I also knew that I needed to get Kate up because that was her first day of preschool that day. And um, while I was in the shower, I had him in the bouncy seat outside and I peeked out just to check. And when I peeked out, he was actually having a seizure, Hmm. which totally caught me off guard. So I got myself around quick, woke Tom up, told him what was going on. He was going to stay and get Katie ready and then meet me at the hospital um, as soon as he could. I called the doctor on the way there they They were amazing. They met us at the door at the ER and were ready to to do every test that they needed to to, to take care of him. Yeah. And so when they were doing that, um, they started doing blood work and they um, started to suspect spinal meningitis. Um, so what they did is they tried to do a spinal tap there. And it didn't work out very well, but they got enough that they could start doing preliminary tests. And then we were life flighted to a hospital in Toledo. Um, But before we left, it all kind of set in to me as to, to what was happening. I couldn't remember all of my medical stuff, but I knew that spinal meningitis wasn't good. Yeah. And especially in a baby that young. I will be honest, I I started to panic and I started to freak out. And I will never forget one of the medical staff um, from the Life Flight crew came up and he grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, you know what, you can't do this right now. He said, you have to pull yourself together and you have to be strong because your son needs you. And if you are going to act like this, then I can't take you in the helicopter with me. So I need you to be strong. And that was kind of, I think the the next tap was, okay, you need to get it together. You know, we'll, we'll deal with all of this later, but you need to get it together. And um, we rode in the helicopter up there, and they had forwarded all of the test results that they had ran, and they did another spinal tap uh, tap when we got there, and he was diagnosed with uh, spinal meningitis, and at that point in time, they hadn't typed it, so that meant that. Uh, Tom, Katie, and I all had to be isolated along with Ty because there are some forms that are contagious and some forms that are not. So that, that was kind of an eye opening experience because, you know, at that point in time, we, we weren't used to isolation as a family. I had dealt with it in the healthcare field, but not as a family. And what do you do with a four year old in the emergency room? when you're stuck in a room and they can't bring you anything. So I had called my parents to let them know um, what was going on. And they they were wonderful. And they said, you know, we, we will accept whatever risk there is, but we will come and get Katie and then we will isolate at our house until they figure out what we need to do and we'll take whatever precautions. So they actually came and got her and... Then Tom and I stayed with Ty at the hospital.
0: So at this point, Katie, she just started preschool. Yeah,
1: she that was, was to be our She birthday. was
0: four, yeah. And you said Tyler was three months. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so um, kind of as that day went on, they thought that they had caught it early enough and were very hopeful. They started the medications right away, IV. So we, we thought that, you know, we were in the best place that we could be, and we were. But my hope was, okay, you know, something bad has happened, and, but we caught it in time. And while it's going to be a little rocky, we're, we're, we're going to make it through this, and we're going to pull out of it. And we were very hopeful until um, that evening. Um, everything seemed to calm down. And I decided to stay at the hospital with, with Ty and Tom decided to, to go home and kind of take care of things at home. And then he was going to come back in the morning and he had been gone probably about 45 minutes. Ty coated, which means that, um, he stopped breathing and Mm. his heart stopped. It was kind of like You see on TV, everybody, the bells and whistles go off on all of the machines and the people came running in the room. And thankfully, I had um, my best friend, Kelly, there and my cousin, Jeremy, had come to to visit um, to kind of spend the evening with me and they were there. We were allowed to stay in the room for a while. And then I heard, you need to get the mom out of here. And that's kind of when... I, I knew it wasn't good. Yeah. And so they wow. took us out to, to the waiting room. And it, I don't know how long it was. It, it seemed like forever. I had called Tom and told him um, that he needed to come back. And he drove back. And when he got there, they had told us that uh, they were able to revive Ty um, but they had to intubate him, which means that they put him on a ventilator um, to help him breathe um, and that they would do further testing in the morning when he was stable and they could run the test a little more accurately. Sometimes when you run tests, it's too early to see what actually happens, so mm, they needed yeah. to wait just a little bit. So then the, the next morning, he seemed to be okay. Obviously, when you put somebody on a ventilator, you have to um, sedate them. So he was he was sleepy and didn't um, respond a whole lot. And I thought it was, was interesting, again, because I observe people a lot, that when we went down for the MRI um, to see what had happened, because with spinal meningitis, you're... Um, the pressure around your brain, it swells and it puts a lot of pressure on that brain. So they wanted to see what had happened. And when we went down, um, the the two nurses that took us down were pretty chatty um, on the way down in the elevator. And I sat through that. and but on the way back, they were very, very quiet. Um, they didn't make mm-hmm. any eye contact. There wasn't the laughing and joking that there was. And I remember thinking that that was odd, but I didn't know at that point in time what that truly meant. Later, uh, the, the physician um, came in and he talked to Tom and I about that Ty had actually had a brainstem stroke. And um, he had no. He knew that I was an occupational therapist, so he was talking very much in medical terminology and talking to me and showing me pictures of his brain. But at that moment in time, I could not remember what I learned in neurology class in oh, sure. college yeah. and kind of put all of those pieces together. So, looking at the MRI, I saw spots that I'm like, all right. I know that that's not good. Um, I know that a large part of his brain has been affected, but I couldn't remember which parts of the brain did what,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and he kind of just left it at that. So I thought about it, and you know, I did a lot of praying throughout all of this, and I had kind of talked to myself that you know what, you know, God gives you things. That you can handle. And, you know, if Ty had to have a stroke and he had to um, be disabled, at least I was a mom that knew how to work with children that had um, special needs and Katie, while her special needs weren't going to be as extensive, we had been through it before and we had made it and we would do it again. No problem. We'd have to adapt the house. I was already trying to figure out how I was going to do work, how we were going to make our house wheelchair accessible. I mean, that's just where yeah, right. um, it was something that I could fix and that I knew and I was trying to figure out. And so that was um, Tuesday. And on Wednesday, they said that they were going to try to um, wean him from the ventilator. He He wasn't waking up. And I kept questioning that. Um, they said, you know, some people come off of the ventilator faster than others. So I kept asking and kept questioning and, and things like that. And we had some friends that had come up from Finley that were had a very strong um, faith and so they prayed with us. They also one stayed with Ty while the other one went down and got some food from the cafeteria with us and kind of suggested that Tom and I just talk to each other and tell each other that we loved each other, which at that point in time didn't seem like we needed to tell each other that because I mean, we were married and we everything, but I look back and that was such a gift because at that point in time, I needed to hear that he loved me and that he didn't blame me um, for not picking up on this sooner and all of that, because there was some guilt that, you know, had I seen this before, had I taken him to the doctor earlier, could we have prevented all of this? And so I was very grateful for that. And then that night or that afternoon, my parents came up and my dad said, I don't, I don't want to make you think of the worst. He said, but Lori, will they tell you if this is what it's going to be like, or if he's not going to make it? And That that thought had never crossed my mind. I'm like, well, I'm I'm sure that they would, but I'll I'll go ask the nurse. And the nurse um, said, I'll let the the doctor know that you have questions. That's when later the doctor came in and told us that he had had a brainstem stroke. And those types of stroke affect um, your ability to breathe, regulate your temperature, um, all mm. of those things that you really need to have yeah. to live. And so that's when it kind of hit us that Ty was going to live on a ventilator or for the rest of his life, or he was going to die. You know, I was um, 29 at the time and hmm. Tom, Tom was 35, that was not in our plan. You yeah. know, Never, never did we think that we would have to do that. But kind of like you and I had talked about, you know, I feel like we had been given little gifts along the way that helped prepare us. And one of those gifts was when Katie was born, we chose to create a living will for ourselves and to um, determine durable power of attorney and things like that. And if something should happen to us, custody for Katie and any other children that would come after her. So Tom and I had to have those, those hard discussions of if something would happen to me, what, what would I want for myself? And, um, and those are very personal decisions. There is no judging on my part as to what each person decides is right for them. Tom and I both decided that neither one of us wanted to live on a ventilator if we were if there was no quality of life there. And and by quality of life I mean would we know that people were around us and things like that? And sure. so we asked the doctors, you know, is, is he going to know who we are? Will he have any kind of responses? Will he, will he, I guess for a lack of better term, will he be a vegetable for the rest of his life? And, um, They told us that they couldn't tell us that for sure, which I totally understand, but um, basically that he would live on the ventilator for the rest of his life and not be responsive. And so on that Thursday, Tom and I made the hardest decision I think I ever have had to make to this point, and I hope that I ever will have to, um, that we chose that if... um, he couldn't live off of the ventilator then it was selfish for us to keep him here for us that we needed to, um, let him go and, um, go people with God. And so, um, we made the decision to turn off the ventilator and, and that was, was really hard. We have families of very different, uh, well, not very different, but different faiths, um, My family was raised brethren, Um, so Ty was dedicated um, when he was around six weeks old, because we believe that you choose when you are going to be baptized. Mm -hmm. Tom's family is Catholic, and so um, they were struggling with the fact that Ty was never baptized. And so we made some decisions to make sure that both of our families felt comfortable with his passing, um, so we uh, had a nun come in and give him his last rites and things like that um, so that everybody could be at peace. And then um, he passed away on August 28th of 2008.
0: Wow. I'm going gonna, gonna to give you a, a break here because um, I can't imagine... I think that's probably a parent's worst fear is losing a child. And I know several families um, who have experienced that. Uh, The one thing that I I think was really wise with your friends who were up there who talked to you and Tom, Uh, you know, we we went through infertility and people even along that journey, which seems like nothing compared to what you're talking about, said this is either going to pull you apart or strengthen your bond. And certainly that's the case in situations like this, you know, that is going to take a toll not only on yourself individually but upon your marriage, upon all relationships. Um I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. You know, I can't imagine making that choice and and as hard as it had to be, you knew that it was the right choice. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine what you guys went through. I remember uh, in 1977, it dates me a little bit, but my my uncle was very much in the same situation, but he was in his 20s and my grandparents had to make that difficult decision and I was there at the hospital and walked away with them that night and um just how heartbreaking that is to be placed in that situation. Uh, again, they knew as well that it was the right one, but how hard that has to be. And so at this point, he was three months old again, Katie's four and she's, I mean, she's a four-year-old mm-hmm. and so you, you don't get to take that time out no, to kind no. of regroup. And yeah. so, so you left the hospital that night and tried to find your way back to some sense of normalcy.
1: Right. And, you know, um, you know, explaining to a four-year-old, Um, that someone has passed away is, is hard, but then also that it's a baby. I mean, you, you hear about grandparents dying and things like that, but not as often do you hear about, um, babies or small children, um, dying. So we had a lot of explaining to do when we didn't really understand, um, yeah. ourselves, the questions were hard, you know, um, she asked why we let him die. She asked, was he bad? And we put him in timeout and we didn't want him anymore. Mm. Um, so a lot of, a lot of things like that, um, that she asked, we were very fortunate. My in-laws found a book about, explaining it was a a kid's book about explaining about death um so we read a lot about that we also had a a former boss that i had reached out to us right away and recommended that we go and get counseling Mm -hmm. as a couple that i had through my employer i had um that benefit and that he would help me set it up Wow. Honestly, that was, I think, what saved our marriage and helped Katie get through. We went a week after uh, Ty had passed away when things were, were pretty raw and Tom and I went together. And he, he gave us a bit of advice that I don't know how many times I've come back to, that you're going to grieve differently. Um, no two people, even if they've gone through the same situation, even if they're married and are alike or different, that nobody yeah. is going to, to grieve the same way and that we need to respect how the other one grieves. And wow. that went for Katie, too. And so I cried a lot. I missed him. I felt alone and empty, and I just couldn't um, kind of get through that. Tom, on the other hand, appeared to, he cried for a while and grieved for a while, but then one day just kind of, it appeared to me that he flipped a switch. It was, it was time to be done with this stage yeah, and to move on. Um, so he did that. Katie, um, she walked into preschool, announced to her class that her brother had died and life kind of appeared to go back to normal. We had a lot more tantrums and acting out, which the counselor told us was normal. Yeah, I don't know how many times we told her it's it's okay to be angry and it's okay to um, be sad, but we don't throw fits and kind of thinking about that. But there were a lot of arguments about, you know, why don't you feel why don't you cry? Why don't you show any kind of emotion? Don't you miss him? And he said, you know, you don't have to cry all the time. And that was hard to hear from him, but it was also Mm. hard for him to hear from me.
0: Sure. First of all, just to go back to the questions that Katie was asking and you, you said, you know, that you didn't know yourself what those answers were. And I'm, I mean, this is probably one of the first questions that God gets when we see him face to face is why. Mm -hmm. And, and this is probably the biggest one is why did you allow this to happen? Mm -hmm. And we don't know that you couldn't answer that. You still can't answer that. And and yet you're trying to hold your marriage together. You've got questions and, and you know, the counselor told you up front, this is going to be different for both of you. Um, katie's struggling with this, and then even as a family, that whole dynamic mm-hmm. and we are going to be doing a podcast on why bad things happen to good people because I think that probably most of humanity wants to know that yes, and yes. Um, and you guys were right in the middle of that mm-hmm. and trying trying to just do everything you could to get get through it and out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so you, you were both trying to figure each other out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I can't imagine, um, you know, your thoughts toward him and his towards you because right. they were so different. Mm-hmm. And yet it is normal. You know, I've, yes. I've had pastor counselors told me that, you know, there are some people that, just act bizarre when, when death comes. Um, when, when my dad passed away, I had a panic attack. I'd never had mm-hmm. one in my life and I thought I was going to die. I've been told that people just laugh hysterically mm-hmm. and nothing is out of bounds that you react the way you react.
1: Right. And there was, I, I guess when you said that, you know, people laugh and things like that, I, I don't like other people to feel uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, my, my, kind of my way out is to use humor. And mm-hmm. so, you know, here we are, you know, 20, 29 and 35, and we have yeah. to make decisions about, you know, where is he going to be buried and things like that. And I was thankful that, you know, my family stepped in and said, you know, we'll help you find a cemetery plot and things like that, because I didn't even know. <laughs> sure. How do you go about doing that? I had never yeah. faced that where before. Do you start? And so my dad had came and he said, you know, I, I, I bought a row of cemetery plots. And, um, so what I was thinking is that your, your mom and I will be in the dead center. And then, um, the, you know, he kind of outlined it and I started laughing I'm like, of course she will be dead center because how else would you be in a cemetery? And I thought that was absolutely hilarious. And everyone else just looked at me like I was crazy. But so, you know, it, it was those things. We also had a a situation when we had to go and pick out the headstone that I didn't like the font on the headstone because it made him look dead. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, but that's really what a headstone is for. And so kind of thinking about it that way, that the things that I said and the things that I did didn't always make sense. And that's that whole traumatic piece of going through his illness and then losing him and then seeing the toll that it took on, the my mental health and those around me started to spiral out of control. Sure. It became very, very dark. And I think that's where, you know, I was, I was missing my baby and Hmm. I wanted anything I could do to get him back. You know, I was willing to, to bargain with God of, you know, please let this have been a mistake and let them have switched the baby or, um, you know, anything. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. You know, take me instead. You know, yeah. all of those things that I've heard other people say I was saying. Yeah. And it, it became really dark and I became not rational because then it moved to, well, I can't have my baby. I want a baby. And so... You always, you you've in the past heard about those those women that take other people's babies or things like right. that, and I always thought, you know, oh my gosh, they're 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 quote unquote crazy, and how how could anybody do that? And then since I've been in that situation, I understand it's that that puzzle piece of why that person has done it yeah. is because their heart hurts so badly, and they want so badly what they've lost that they can't think, um, rationally to make those decisions, to see that it's not the right thing to do. And that by doing that, that they would hurt someone else. So having those thoughts, I was thankful that I had Tom there to say, you, you can't think like that because would you want somebody else to think or to feel the way that you have, that yeah. they've lost their babies. And, you know, I would never wish this upon anyone else. You know, I would never do that to someone else. Um, no matter what, because even in my darkest time, I didn't want to hurt someone else, but then, then it became, well, if I, if I can't have that, then, then kind of what is the, the point of me going on. Hmm. If, if I can't have my baby, then if I died, then I could go and be with him. And so there, there were thoughts of, of killing myself. And I don't know that most people knew that at the time. And many people don't know that still, That it was, it was that bad. I knew how to hide it. Everybody knew that I was sad, that I wasn't able to focus. I wasn't myself, but I don't think that they realized how bad it was. I had a plan. I knew how I was going to do it and had decided that I was at peace with that. I had, I guess, kind of the turning point, in, and I had shared this with you earlier, is that Katie kind of was my my strength through that, my purpose of getting up, because there were days that I didn't want to get up out of bed. And to have that blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl, Come hmm. to your bed and look at you and say, You need to get up because I need to eat. And we had child locks on everything, so she couldn't beat herself. So I got out of wow. bed. And, you know, she she wanted to trick-or-treat. And how do you tell them that they can't trick-or-treat? So I yeah. know that, that we went trick-or-treating that year, but I don't remember it. And the day that I had finally decided that I was I was going to be done. I was going to finally follow through with my plans. I dropped her off at daycare that day, and I kissed her goodbye like I always did and told her that I loved her. And she looked up at me and said, Mommy, you're going to come back and get me, right? Wow. I tried really hard to always be honest, and tell the truth. But how could I look at her and, mm. and tell her that I wasn't coming back to get her. So yeah. she, she, held me accountable and I chose not to do that. And I came back to daycare and got her. And that was kind of a, a turning point that I couldn't make her lose one more person. She had already lost her brother And she was going to have a struggle that way. I couldn't let her down and not let her have a mom too. And so that was kind of the day that I decided that if I wasn't going to do it for myself, I needed to do it for her and that I needed to suck this up and figure out how to get through it. It was, it was
0: rough. You understand something that some of us don't understand. Your thoughts were not rational, but that pain was so strong that you were just looking for a way out. You had your husband, you had your daughter, and you didn't see any way out of that because of the pain. And Mm -hmm. so you have something that I like, I said, most of us have never experienced, and uh, you got to believe that that God was speaking through Katie that day. Yeah, and uh, she never knew it because He knew your plans. Yeah. Wow. So you had to make a decision when you drove away.
1: Yeah, and and I think a piece that we often overlook is. I was trained to help people with mental health issues. In my education, I know about coping skills. I know that I need to reach out to my support system. I had an amazing support system. I had great coworkers. Both of our families were amazing. We had good friends. I had what I needed. I just wasn't using my resources because I couldn't, even with everything that I had, figure out what I needed. And I think that that speaks a lot to if someone who is trained on this can't figure it out, how can we expect other people that are in these dark times to be able to figure it out? And that's why, you know, mental health services and reaching out to your family and to your friends when you think that something appears to be a little off or maybe you don't think it's off, but they've been through a rough time. Reach out because you, you don't know what's cool. going through their head.
0: I have to admit, and, you know, I, I talked earlier in our conversation, I talked about how your quote that day in class about seeing people as a puzzle and missing pieces. I, I now find myself doing things that I wouldn't have done before because I don't know what they're going through. A lot of times it's at the grocery store when somebody does something and I can I can choose to look past that or I can react to that in a positive way. And I found myself doing things like that based on your story because we have no idea what the other person's going through. People that you came in contact with during that time that you was not that we're not family. Had no idea what you, what you'd gone through. I think that's so encouraging, and I think that another aspect of this on a spiritual uh, part too is I think we've talked about this on other podcasts. Is I think this is where many times the church misses out because we have our routine and we focus on our services and our things that we're supposed to do: read our Bibles and go to church and all those things. When we we forget that that Jesus was more concerned about reaching out to people and meeting their needs than he was about the Pharisees in that day of of making sure they did everything right. It's about the heart, and and I think I just have to say that that just that one time in class, uh, listening to your story and listening to this, has really inspired me to look at people in a different way. You went through a ton all of you really all of you went through a lot at that time can't imagine but you made it through and you so so you went home that day and made decisions and then you picked katie up that afternoon and so what happened from there what changed in you
1: i i continued to i guess throughout it all um there was lots of prayers but i i started reading books about um Max Lucado was one of my um, favorite authors on the subjects, and um, you know, just anything that I could do to figure out, you know, you know, why, give me answers, give me guidance. Yeah. Um. So I did a lot of that. The counselor told us to not make any major changes for a year, which was also hard. Because just because you make the decision to not give up doesn't mean that moving forward is going to be pretty. And right. um, so they told us no major changes for at least a year. Stay away from drugs, alcohol, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, drugs have are not an issue um, with us, but we drink socially. There were days that you just wanted to numb the pain a little bit, take yeah. the edge off, and right. Tom and I made that pact that we would not, we would not drink for a year, mm. and so there were days that um, that was very tempting, but we chose not to. And we stuck with that. Um, we were very um, grateful that um, we had wonderful neighbors that kind of came and and drug us out of the house. They figured us out that at that point in time, I became, well, both of us became very, very protective of Katie. I didn't want her out of my sight because if I couldn't protect my child while they were with me. How could I ever trust somebody else to do that? Hmm. And so they would um, come over and say, you know, we're, we're having a campfire. Um, will you come and we would make up some excuses to why we weren't And they there like well we're we're going to take Katie and they knew that I wouldn't say no to Katie but I also wouldn't let her go by herself yeah. and so they they were very much a gift to us to help out and we kind of moved through life did the things that we were expected to do and we're thrown a lot of curveballs after That within that year of Ty's passing, um, Katie lost her hearing more and was diagnosed with enlarged vestibular aqueducts, which means that she would eventually lose all of her hearing. Hmm. Tom was in a car accident where he rear-ended a semi because he hit black ice. And we found out that we had two cars of the same make and model in year, but the insurance company made a mistake and only insured one. And it was the one that I was driving that day. So the car that he um, um, hit the semi with was not insured. Hmm. And then he fell out of a tree and broke his ankle. That was kind of the last straw for me when he told me that he fell out of the tree. I actually laughed. Because I knew that he was somewhat okay. Yes, he broke his ankle, um, but he was somewhat okay. And it's like, all right, listen here, God, you know, I know that everybody has told me that you're not going to be given something that you can't handle, but I've, I've about reached my limit. I can't take anymore and Mm. I'm, I can't do it anymore. And, you know, I said, you know, I'm trying to have faith, but you know, come on. How much yeah. can, can one person take? Yeah. So that was kind of the year, and we we just kept moving on. I think the the thing that I was afraid of is that I would forget Ty, and I somebody told me that it you don't ever stop missing them, it just gets different. So the hurt is still there, um, yeah, but it's different. Now twelve years later
0: than it was then I'm not a counselor but i I have to believe as well that sharing your story um, it, it was a I I know it was not taken lightly um, Lori to share your story and especially on the podcast to um, just kind of announce this but I got to believe that there's some healing in that as well is to allow people to to really grieve with you because um, you don't have to hide that puzzle piece anymore, you know, and uh, you know that you have so many people in your life that love you, family. Um, I know that your husband and your daughter love you dearly, and I see that when you guys are at games, and I think and I pray that through your story and sharing your story that that will strengthen you and um, not only help you to continue to get through this, but also to help others as well. I can't believe the amazing strength that it took you to share this because um, that's tough. I, I can't even, there are no words uh, to describe what you went through. And then like you said, through that the rest of that year, uh, all of the things that kept happening and you had to just throw your hands up and say what, I mean, I, I've been to points in my life where I say, God, what did I do? That was so wrong that you're doing this to me. And, you know, those are questions we can't hide from God because he knows it whether we say it or not. (laughs) And, um, yeah, you you guys, all three of you are, are incredible people and very strong people. And, um, so grateful for your story. The great thing is your story continues. Um, Mm -hmm. God has a, a plan for each one of you and, you're here for a purpose and uh one of those i know we 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 squeezed our basketball season in without this (laughs) pandemic and how how great it was to watch um all the girls and and katie out there playing so where are you guys at right now what's what's life like for you 12 years later
1: Um, and you're an
0: occupational therapist so you (laughs) You know it all, right? You've got it all together. <laughs> no, no, I
1: don't ever claim um, yeah, claim that. Um, well, uh, now we have um, kind of fallen into our our new normal, which is is very different than kind of either of us had planned. Um, yeah. But we also, are I at least, have decided that the situation that We have gone through this, this event that we have gone through that I, I need to make sure that it wasn't, that it's not lost. And so, um, that it had a purpose because like you said, I don't know why it happened, but I have to make sure that something good comes out of it. Um, so that's, that's kind of been my purpose. So now at the university, I teach um, a mental health class to our OT students, and um, I find that a lot of them, you know, they're in their early 20s. Um, some of them are a little bit older, but really haven't seen a lot of life. And so they have this perception of what people who have experienced trauma or have um, been suicidal or have mental health issues, what they look like, quote unquote, that, you know, they're scary and, you know, kind of what that stigma is. And yeah. so by the time I teach them um, this class, they, they have had me for uh, about three classes. And um, so they feel like they know me pretty well. And so I do an activity. It, um, it's, it's, called Expressive Media, where you um, kind of open up the door for someone to talk to you by either journaling or making a collage or doing a drawing or a painting. And so this is the class that you came in and saw. Yeah. And I, I tell them, okay, I want you to think about a rough day that you have had. And I ask them to put them themselves and make that drawing or that journal entry or that collage. We I let them have about 10 or 15 minutes to do that. And then I talk a little bit about how that made them feel because I never ask them to share theirs. And they're not allowed to look at anybody else's because whatever they put on is personal. Mm-hmm. And then then I showed them a collage that I made during my darkest time, which was um, what we went through um, with Ty. And they, they kind of just sat there. Because they have no idea that I was that low at one point in time. And that I have the anxiety that I have. I I don't want to ever make a mistake again. And that's not reasonable or rational. And I know that. But the mistake, whether it was a mistake or not, I missed the signs that Ty was sick. Therefore in my heart or in my head I know that that was not a mistake you can't see 2020 right but you know my heart still says if you would have saw this you could have maybe fixed it maybe it would have been different and so therefore I strive for perfection I don't like to make mistakes I don't like to miss things so I have almost gone the other way of becoming very analytical and every move that I make is calculated because I don't I don't want bad things to happen again, even though I know that that's not in my control. That's God's right. control. but yeah. it's it's still I have trust issues um, with myself and with others. And yeah. so they they don't understand that I have anxiety because I show them my picture of a confident, put together happy-go-lucky person and they don't see those puzzle pieces that I have hidden from them. And so I show them them, those pieces and then we talk about, you know, the strengths that I had. I had a lot of support systems. Mm. I had my family. I had great friends. Um, I was an OT. I had the financial resources to um, help myself. Um, Get out of that. I had occupations that made me that helped me cope. I love to run. I love to bake. I love to be outside. And so much of what we look at as health professionals are what is wrong with people? You know, what do we need to fix? Okay, she's she's suicidal. She's depressed. Um, She has anxiety. How do we fix those things? but the greatest thing that you can do to help people fix things is look at the strengths that they already have the supports that they already have mm. and while i bark at them during class of okay that's what's wrong with them that that case study but what is right with them what what do they have going for them and they they can't see that until i kind of plug those pieces in is sure you know my profession saved me my running saved me my wow. friends saved me and that's what, what got me through. And then we talk a lot about empathy and sympathy. They feel like they are not good health professionals or they can't be good health professionals unless they're sympathetic. And I explained to them that, you know, when someone is going through a traumatic event or they're having a mental health um, crisis that you need to view them as that they're in a trench That's up over their head. And when you're in that trench, you can only see what's in the trench. You can't see Hmm. what's coming ahead of you or what's behind you. You can't see your, your supports. You can't see your challenges as much because you're in that trench. And if you as a, a professional or a friend jump in that trench with them to show them sympathy so that you truly feel what they feel then you can't see what's coming for them and your ability to help them decreases significantly. Wow. Whereas if you are empathetic, empathetic means that you're standing on top of that trench. You can look down and you can see that person and you can see what they're going through and you can kind of understand it. But you can also look up and you can see what's coming ahead. You can look at the positives in their life. You can look mm. at the supports so that you can be more helpful. And wow. that's really what I hope that they take away from me sharing that story is that, you know, to be the most helpful to a person, you you need to look at that whole person, not just the pieces that are broken, but that the whole person and that's what will help to strengthen them and help them get them
0: through. Wow, that's so good. So good. And, you know, we as believers, we know that we're all broken. Mm-hmm. We do a, a very good job of hiding our brokenness. And uh, sometimes to our demise, you know, we, we, um, we hide it from ourselves and that doesn't help that hurts so i think in our society we do uh, you know you talked earlier about facebook and how you know nobody we all we all want to put the good things on on facebook and we all have that opinion of somebody else saying that they've got it all together that their life seems so great and i wish that i could be you know like that uh but the truth is you know we share what we want those puzzle pieces and we are all broken mm-hmm. And for me, that's where I don't, I, for me, the, the spiritual side of that is what gives me hope to get through those things and to know that when God seems silent, like he did to you in that hospital, why is this happening? Why would you do this? He's there right beside you. I think for me, that's what gets me through life is to know that, first of all, God cares more than I could imagine, and that I've got a great support group of people around me that care about me, love me, and will help me when I need that help. And um, so I love the fact that you talk to them about looking at the positives to encourage people and and to uh, be able to help them better by seeing the, the good things and not just the broken pieces. I usually end, when we have conversations like this, I usually end with advice and you kind of gave it, but if if you know of someone out there who is struggling with grief, um, with suicidal thoughts, with mental health issues, we just had a podcast. It was it was on abortion, and the statistics were something like eighty percent of people who had an abortion and, and are looking for help don't know where to turn. Eighty percent, like almost twenty percent said that they would go to Planned Parenthood, which is where it started, and only 1% would go to the church. And I and I mentioned earlier that uh, I think our churches fail. And um, wouldn't it be great if people naturally in those situations felt like they were accepted and that they could go to a church that would help them through these things? Um, because we have Great counselors in our churches, and we have uh, lots of knowledge and and scriptural background um, to really help to see the whole picture. You know, we are spiritual beings and we're physical beings. To bring all those things together uh, would be such a great thing. Mm -hmm. So, I'm going to ask you what, for those who are listening, and maybe they haven't been through what you've been through, but they're Mm -hmm. at a place where they feel hopeless and they don't know where to turn. And maybe they're thinking about ending it all. What What advice would you have for them right now?
1: Your success rate of making it through rough days is 100%. And that there are a lot of resources out there. And please don't be afraid to let people know that you're struggling. No one will think that you are weak or think less of you. That... There's life worth living and there's people out there that will help you. You just have to open that door. Just open it once and there are people out there that will help you. There's lots of organizations, lots of people. And if people don't know where to turn, um, you know, just ask. There are people out there that will help you figure that out.
0: And you're not alone.
1: Exactly. Exactly
0: exactly yeah Lori, i want to thank you so much um it takes a lot of courage to ask for help and um it took a lot of courage for you tonight to share your story and i know that god's going to use this to help others who are hearing this right now and i just pray that uh you would be a part of hearing their stories and how your story helped them as well Mm -hmm. because i know that uh I know God's got a purpose in this, as hard as it was. Thank you. Well, what an amazing story that Lori shared with us. And uh, there's so many around us that deal with pain that we don't even know about. We don't even see. And so I hope that this has helped you. I hope that it's helped you to see people in a different light. I know it has me. Uh, I pray that as we continue through this journey of life, that we would see people through the eyes of Jesus and meet them with compassion and understanding that there are things in our backgrounds that make us who we are. Uh, If you're not a believer, I would encourage you to consider making Jesus a part of your life. And I don't say that flippantly. Uh, I know from experience having accepted Jesus as my Savior back when I was 12 years old, how It has made life not easier, but it's made it more purposeful, and God has been there to show me his hand all along the way through my life, and life is so much more fulfilling with him. Well, join us next time as we talk to the daughter of Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A restaurants. Trudy has written a book. We're going to talk to her just about some things dealing with Chick-fil-A and the uh, amazing story behind that restaurant franchise that has grown. And so many of us love uh, not only the chicken, but the amazing service that they provide. So join us next week as we talk to Trudy and White.